The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. So, Mo, I, like you, I think we are super excited to talk to our guests this week. I know I am. I know this is going to sound a little odd, but when I was younger, I used to think I didn't have to worry about the world so much if Bruce Coburn was doing that for me. Yeah, he was going to save the world, and he wrote all these catchy tunes. And in case you need reminding, which I'm sure nobody does, uh, Wondering Where the Lions Are, uh, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, Catchy tunes. Well, gather around and listen up, kids. Bruce Coburn is one of Canada's most revered singer-songwriters, if not the world's. He was born in Ottawa. He's had He is having a remarkably long and varied career, uh, not only as a musician, but as an activist, a very outspoken one, uh, concerned about the environment, indigenous rights, humanitarian causes. Long before the world, I'm going to say, woke up to these issues, if if they did, if we have. Yeah, I don't know. Are we are we awake? If in fact he has woken up. Anyway, if you're wondering where the lions are, they are still at the gate. And here are some numbers for you. Uh, Bruce has released, I think it's 38 albums. We'll have to double check. Uh, his latest is O Sun, O Moon. 22 of those albums have gone gold or platinum. He's won 13 Juno Awards. He was made an officer of the Order of Canada. He's been married twice. Is the father of two daughters, one in her 40s. The other, I think she's still 11. Maybe she's turned 12. Either way, good luck. Uh, And he's heading out on tour this spring at the age of 78. Wow. All right. So lots to talk about. I would like to mention that Bruce also wrote and performed the theme song to Franklin the Turtle, uh, which is how he's best known in our household. Heard him every day. Uh, So it's not all falling trees and rocket launchers, but it is that too. Bruce Coburn. Thank you so much for joining us. It's such a, an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. It's lovely to be had. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to get out. <laughs> so are we having you? A nice beard, by the way. Uh, you've got a very long, almost Santa Clausy kind of beard. but Letterman, I would say. More David Letterman. How is the changing the world, making the world a better place going? I mean, uh, Maureen says she counted on you. I'm not sure it's getting better, is it? Bad idea, counting on me I, for that. But, you know, the world changes it's just by by definition, we can we we have to ride those changes and shape them if we can. But I, you know, I don't have a great deal of faith. Is the wrong word. I don't put a great deal of stock in the in the the notion that any individual can do much about anything. And yet, it's the individuals who do. I mean, a, a Martin Luther King or or a, a David Suzuki, for that matter, can have an effect. But the problem is to translate, or the difficulty is to translate that effect into something that spreads more broadly than just the people who are paying attention to those individuals. So that that becomes very, a kind of a crapshoot. And we can see where we are. I mean, there's probably a more widespread understanding of the predicament the world is in at this moment in history than there's ever been. And yet, the decision makers are still making the wrong decisions constantly. By by design. I mean, they're not they're not ignorant of the issues. They're some of them are in denial about it, but not for lack of information. It's it's just a choice. Like, okay, well, I don't. I'm not. I'm going to disregard this bunch of warnings because it's because I'm making money the other way. You know, confronted with that, how much can we do to change the world? I I don't know. I I just like I say, I see it as kind of riding the changes and doing whatever you can where you can. One way of doing it, though, which you do, is to introduce these issues through popular culture. 
So, you know, I've been humming wonder, <laughs> wonder where the lions are since we knew you were coming on. And people, by listening to your music and singing along or knowing it, they and actually thinking about what they're saying is probably more effective than being hammered over the head by earnest do-gooders who a lot of people find either boring or don't want to deal with it. I mean, pop culture is a wonderful way to to affect change. It's the sneaky way to get to the people who don't want to deal with it. But, I mean, for me, I, I don't feel uh, like I'm on any sort of crusade. I, I never have. I, I write what I feel matters to me, and I want to share it with people. And, I mean, I write the songs because I'm kind of compelled to write songs, but and, and the content is, is determined by whatever confronts me and produces an emotional response. It's the nature of songs that they want to be heard. So I just always felt right right from the get-go that if you're going to have words to a piece of music, they might as well say something. And like that was kind of the starting point for me under the influence of Bob Dylan and John Lennon and other people that were writing great songs back in the 60s. And under the influence of a lot of poets who, I love language, and language is, is you know, is about saying things. <laughs> it's like, like kind of obviously... You know how you create beauty, how you juxtapose beauty and horror, how you how you create an entity, a song in my case, that becomes a vehicle for the sharing of of feeling and experience among a group of people. And you know if if that group of people is sympathetic to a particular idea that's in the song, then they may be motivated to go out and address that issue, whatever it is. But they may feel like they've done their bit just by listening to the song too. That happens. Yeah, well, wondering where the lions are, it's it's very, I, I think it was about nuclear war at the time, but you listen to it now, and it could be about anything. It could be about a, an existential crisis, or it could be about, you know, eternity, and now you're edging closer to eternity. Well, it's true. Well, we yes, if we don't die first, as it were, that horizon gets closer. We don't know that it's closer. I mean, you don't, you never know how long you're going to live. For me, every album could have been the last one, including the first one. You don't know. But at this age, obviously, the odds are stacked, you know, in favor of, of, of the approach of that horizon. So, okay, well, you know, as you mentioned, O Sun, O Moon in your introduction, and that album talks a lot about that. But Wondering Where the Lions Are I was mostly about waking up in the morning and, and, and everything being okay. <laughs> Which, <laughs> it's a positive song. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it, it talks about death, it talks about eternity, and it talks about environmental stuff, and, and it doesn't really talk about nuclear war, although there was a connection because of a, a dinner I had with, uh, with my cousin who was deeply involved in security work, I mean, in international security work. You know, and at this point, Russia and China were going at each other on their mutual border, and nobody knew at this, this is 1979, nobody knew, or maybe 78 even, I forget. But nobody knew if China had nukes or not at that point. And the assumption was they did. But nobody knew what their attitudes were toward the use of those things because, well, the U.S. and Russia had, the, had a hotline and had, a, had an understanding that neither one was going to shock the other. China wasn't part of the deal, so nobody knew what they would do. So, you know, and, and, and he said over dinner, you know, having, having nice Philly meal, you know, as far as we know, the world could end tomorrow. So, you know, I woke up in the morning and it had not. And I'd had this dream as well. The dream is referred to with lions in the street, you know. So 
and the lions were, as the first verse of the song says, they're, they're benign, or at least they're at a distance and, and not threatening in, in that dream, where in contrast to an earlier dream I'd had where they were ripping down the door and coming through, you know, and it was a very terrifying dream. So, so that's kind of what gave rise to the song. So I think I've been writing about death since I started, actually, and that, that, I guess that's in there, too. I want to talk about creativity in, uh, as an older person. And I mean, we all are probably on the downslope rather than the upslope. But there is a belief of, that creativity diminishes as you get older. I mean, if you look at most artists, certainly popular artists, their output was considerable in their 20s and 30s. And then it kind of wanes if it doesn't disappear entirely or they don't have hits anymore. And I wonder... You don't seem. Have you found that yourself, or and and if you haven't, why not? It's interesting. I I don't really think in terms of hits, but if I think of artists, I mean, you think of Picasso, who did his best work in the period of his life that you're talking about, and pretty much everybody, every artist of every discipline that could be said about. But the trade-off is true. Energy gets less available, I think, with age. I don't think the ideas necessarily do, but what I've found with myself is I've, you know, I, I've said a lot of what I have to say. I mean, I've learned a lot over the past 50 or 60 years, but I'm still essentially the same person, and a lot of my feelings are the same as they were in the beginning. And I've talked about that stuff over, over the course of 50 or 60 years, so, you know, what's left to say, it becomes an issue. But because of the way I approach writing, it's, it's never very intentional. It's intentional in the sense that I want to be receptive to ideas and I'm always on the lookout for a song excuse. But I don't sit down and think, okay, now I'm going to write a song about Israel and Palestine, for example, or the forests or, you know, or how much I love my wife. I don't start out with that premise, with any premise as a writer. It's just an idea comes and then I try to chase it down. Given that, I mean, as a result of having done as much as I've done, ideas come and sometimes I have to throw them away because there are ideas that have already been dealt with enough you know, and, and don't need any more addressing. Other times it might be the same old idea, but I think of a new way to go at it and then there's a song. Well, it's not like the issues are, are changing that much. We still have nuclear war. We still have uh, global warming. There's still lots of problems with Indigenous issues. And so, but I've, I found it really interesting that you talk about how much you love your wife. And I have to admit to being a little bit disappointed that you became a U.S. citizen and that you live in San Francisco, because to me, you're like this great Canadian superstar. So how dare you, really? <laughs> For love? <laughs> I'm here because I, because my wife is here, essentially. I mean, I have a life here. We've been here now since 2009. So... I'm not sure I've actually put down roots. I'm not sure I put down roots anywhere on the planet, but but I feel comfortable here and I and familiar and yeah, I like the place as much as I've liked any place I've been. And you have an 11 year old. Is she 11 or or, or 12? So good luck. Basically, uh, you've you've been through this before. But I, I my older daughter. Well, that family broke up basically when she was three and a half. So. I became the every second weekend dad after that. And so I had much less an influence and, and involvement in her upbringing than I do now with my younger daughter. And uh, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, I, I went through most of my adulthood feeling like I had no paternal instinct, whatever, and, and no desire to have progeny, particularly I had, I had one that was fine. I've done that, you know, and she's great. My older daughter came out very well, actually. In spite of many things, I find that, you know, having a young kid around, it's 
pretty amazing. I might be a little too old for it, but I think I'm, I think I'm getting away with it. It's interesting because I have a millennial and a Gen X, sorry, Gen Z, Z for you, San Franciscans, and their attitudes towards having children, particularly my younger son, who's 25, it's quite pessimistic. And, you know, like the planet's going to hell in a handbasket. My argument is, well, you can't, we live, we live because of hope. And that's kind of why we're here. Not that I'm insisting that they have children, but I'm talking more of a generational reluctance that we didn't encounter uh, in our era. And I feel like saying, well, Bruce Coburn has a 12 year old and Bruce has been, you know, aware of what's been going on for a long time. So, so, so maybe there's room for optimism. We had that conversation in the 70s. You know, before my first daughter was born, that late 60s, early 70s, a lot of people were going around saying we shouldn't have kids because there's too many people and because of where the world was going. And at that time, we didn't understand as much detail about we, as we do now about what that really means. But it was widely understood that the future was iffy and that having kids, you know, might, might be a bad idea. But we did it anyway. <laughs> And, and I think that the, you know, it might be that the kids do it now, too. A difference between then and now is sperm counts are down worldwide. So even if, they're, if the intention is there, there may not be as many children as we used to produce, which, I, as far as I can understand, it seems like a good thing, even though it, it upsets economics everywhere because the, 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 with an aging population and not, you're not replacing the, the old people, how does the work get done? Who makes the money? All, all that stuff. And how do you feed the, uh, the aging population that isn't working anymore? But that's, that's a different issue, but an important one. Really, uh, fewer people is our ticket to survival, I think, as a species. It's funny how you're still so, well, it's not funny. It's wonderful that you're still so full of hope. And it, it's one of your lines that has always stuck with me, which is, and it sounds like you still believe in it, thank goodness, uh, got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. So you're still kicking. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, <laughs> alive and kicking. I mean, you can't give up. What life would you have if you give up? I, I, mean, I don't know. I, and for me, it's not, it doesn't require effort. I can't get rid of the hope. As dark as everything looks around, I still feel it. I feel it from other people, too. Uh, you know, I mean, this, uh, the old cliche, hope springs eternal in the human breast, uh, it's a cliche for a reason. Why that should be, I guess it's, you know, as a species, we're built that way. If your life is filled with so much trauma that you can't hope, then that, that's tragic, I think. And that happens to people in different ways because of the personal things that happen to them or because of big things like war and natural disasters. But, but even there, I mean, the survivors of the concentration camps in the Second World War can talk about hope, too, in spite of the horrors that they witnessed. You know, so if, if, if they can have hope, then the rest of us damn well better. The Women of Ill Repute. I want to ask you a question about musicianship. And it sort of ties in with what we're talking about creativity. I've been taking piano lessons for 12 years, but I took it up in midlife and I'm not getting any better. Um, <laughs> I don't think I ever will. Uh, but that's fine. I love I love playing. But I'm curious, as as a brilliant musician that you are, I mean, does it get any more challenging or does it get easier? I'm just talking about being a player. For me, it's gotten harder because my hands are arthritic and more of a struggle to do the same things that I used to be able to do. There's a couple of things I used to be able to do that I can no longer do. 
But I've learned a lot, too. And you could draw a parallel there with what we were talking about, about creativity a minute ago, because generally we learn better when we're young. I watched my younger daughter. She just soaks up stuff like a sponge, and she doesn't forget anything. I forget stuff all the time. And I always have, like as far as I can remember. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the kids are sharp, and, and they're, they're taking in information in a big way. It's a lot easier for them, for young people to learn than it is when you get older. I know, I'm not sure why that is, whether it's because we've packed our brain with so much garbage over the years that it's hard to put new stuff in it, or whether it's just like all the processes slow down, but I suspect the latter. Muscle memory has a lot to do with it. I can practice and practice and practice and practice. And when I, I, I played when I was little and, it, you know, after practicing for 20 minutes, I had it. And now it's it's got to be there's a disconnect between the brain and, and the fingers. Well, that's my excuse anyway. That and horrible stage fight. But anyway. One thing that came up, uh, one of my brothers, well, both my brothers play guitar recreationally. And, and one of them was having trouble with learn, learning a difficult classical piece that, they, that he'd been working on for a long, long time. And he, he, he got really frustrated with it because, it because it wasn't getting anywhere. And he could play other stuff. He said, I'm starting to hate the guitar because I can't, I can't play this piece. And I, I said, well, you stop playing that piece and play the ones you like playing and that you already can play and have fun with it again. Bring the fun back into it. Because if you don't do that, then it just becomes a, a chore. So... In terms of practicing, in terms of the discipline required, yes, you do have to put time in. But you also have to remember why you wanted to do it in the first place. Otherwise, there's no motivation. I have a, a big confession to make. I, I don't know the uh, the lyrics to the Franklin song. So was it, <laughs> was it inspirational? It's <laughs> like <laughs> Franklin come out to play. It's pretty simple. <laughs> I can't remember it all either. There's only four lines, but I can't remember <laughs> Only four lines, I know. It's not a song I practice regularly. I did play it live once in New York, and people were calling out for it. You know, this was a few years ago, but there was a lot of people in the audience with young kids, and they therefore knew the song. So they're calling out for, hey, do Franklin, do Franklin. I, so I promised them that the next time I came back, I would do it. So then the next time I came back, I actually did it. But that's the only time it's ever been performed in public by me. It got a laugh out of everybody, but it was it was a good thing. In the end, that song is not typical. I mean, the, the way that song came to be is not typical of how I write at all. I mean, for one thing, it had to be submitted to the committee be, to, for approval before it was accepted. And they came back with, you know, well, you have to change this. You have to change that. And you can't say, I forget now, what some of these, these, these like minuscule details that were considered not appropriate are too over the heads of the kids' audience, like, as if, you know, kids, nothing's over kids' heads. If they're interested, they're paying attention, they get everything. But the, the suits don't. No. <laughs> so <laughs> it got done, and it was a lot of fun to record it. And, and then we, a few years later, they came out with version two of Franklin, and we did another version of it, and that was fun, too. What's it like to hire, a, because lovers in a dangerous time, that I'm sorry, but I keep hearing, not you. I, Oh, it's bare naked ladies. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it like? I mean, now you're, you, 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 maybe you're into kindness and you're writing about how, you know, you've, you're past all of those bad feelings, but still, what's it like when somebody else makes your song famous for them? A hit, as it were. Well, that, I mean, back in the day, this was talked about a lot, but when I first heard it, I was dismayed because, because it was so different from my version of it and I couldn't relate. 
it was like, what have they done to my song? You know, that, that feeling. And but I got over it. And you know, the, the bare naked ladies and and I performed it together, both versions, their mine and theirs, at different times. That you know, now and then over a period of years, we haven't done it for a long time now. But I got past that. And I mean, it's something as a songwriter, you hear somebody else's take on something that's very personal. It's difficult. It can be. It depends on, on who it is and, and what they do to it. Michael Acapendi did an, an album of jazz interpretations, let's say, of, of a bunch of my songs, which is fantastic. And, and you almost can't recognize the songs. I mean, he's, he constructed them and put them back together. And I mean, you can hear where it came from, and, but he, he took it in a really interesting direction. So, you know, there was no difficulty assimilating that. I guess I'm more sensitive to what people do with lyrics, too, although that, that doesn't apply to Bare Naked Ladies' version of Lovers, which they were very respectful about doing the lyrics right on that. But uh, other people will leave out chunks or they'll add words of their own and stuff like that. And I get that that's always uncomfortable for me when, when that happens. At the same time, I respect it and require it for myself, too. If I were to do a cover of somebody's song, I, I would reserve the right to myself to mess with it as, as much as I wanted to. And I have to give people and other people the same right. It's just emotionally tricky. You've been with the same people for a long time. Colin Linden has been your longtime producer. Your agent is Bernie Finkelstein, Finkelstein, who's a neighbor of Wendy's, apparently. You've had a team. That's quite remarkable in this business, that you've managed to maintain these relationships. Bernie Finkelstein and I have been together since, the, since 1969. We've been working together. And that's almost unheard of. Colin and I have been working together since the early 90s, but... Uh, and I mean, the first 10 albums were produced by Eugene Martinek, and then he did one in the 80s, and, and Jonathan Goldsmith and Kerry Crawford did some in the 80s. I produced one of them myself in the 80s, but I didn't like myself as a producer very much. Yeah, Colin's done the last many albums, and it's worked well. I, I guess as long as there's the feeling that the collaboration is producing something good, then there's no reason to change it. It's that simple. I've got, I have Wendy's notes here. Apparently you've had the same pair of glasses for 50 years. That's my stupid question. But <laughs> I, I saw this. <laughs> I included it. I'm glad you asked. Well, talking about hanging on to things. The first, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be 1964, probably, or maybe late 63. I got an album by the Jim Queskin Jug Band and, and the picture of the band on the front. The, the one of the band, band members, a guy named Fritz Richmond, was wearing little round black sunglasses. And I thought, that's so cool. Those, those round glasses are the coolest thing. First month in Boston going to music school in, in 64, I went into a junk shop and there was a pair of round glasses there. They were, I mean, I needed prescription lenses, but they, they were the wrong prescription. But I, you, I bought the frames for a buck or 25 cents or something and then went and got lenses put in and I've been wearing round glasses ever since. Those frames eventually died. But they've been replaced a few times. But these I've had these for quite a while. Yeah. It's your part of your signature, right? The round glasses. Yeah, like you and John Lennon. Like where do, where do you put them? I'm always losing mine. How do you how do you keep your your glasses? Like do you, do you have like one of those little old lady things around the neck? <laughs> <laughs> how do you do no, that? No, I don't do that. No. I just I I for for a long time I uh, well, I discovered with a pair of glasses that I had it when I was going to Berkeley and studying. 
music that I'd be sitting there playing, and if I was if it was sweaty at all, the glasses would slip down, slip down, slip down, and eventually be ready to fall off. So, so I started wearing the ones with that hook around your ears, which don't fall off. That said, I've I've lost a few pairs of those in surf in various parts of the world, in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific off of Central America, in the in the Algarve in Portugal. Sunglasses were swept off my face in, in at least those three places over the years. Once I had a cataract operation as an old guy, I don't, I don't really need glasses anymore. I mean, I, I need them for reading, but my distance vision is fine. So now I don't need to wear them in the water. I can see the sharks coming with, without. <laughs> I think you've always been able to see the sharks coming. <laughs> Bruce Coburn, this has been an absolute. Del- <laughs> this has been an absolute delight. Your uh, world tour begins, uh, I believe, in April. You will be at Massey Hall, May twenty fifth, and you've got additional dates in Guelph, London, Ottawa, and Huntsville and Kingston. That's for our Canadian audience. There's a whole bunch of American uh, dates, which you can find on Bruce's website, which is brucecoburn.com, I believe. Yep, and also the Mariposa Festival. I think we're doing this year. On the Mariposa Festival. Fantastic. We have loved talking to you. So thank you so much, Bruce. It's, uh, it, it, it's been lovely. And I, and I like the glasses. Yeah, well, they suit you. Keep kicking at the darkness. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk with you. So, Mo, what, what was the, the Franklin lyrics again? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, hey, it's Franklin. He's come out to play. <laughs> it was actually, you know, between the theme song to Dora the Explorer and Blues Clues, like all the shows that your kids watch, this would be in the early uh, early aughts that, yeah, you love him and you hate him. I have another Bruce, it's it, Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Coburn story. It's not really about Bruce, but I remember it was probably in the early 80s and he was my boyfriend. I was dating a guy who asked me if I wanted to go see Bruce Coburn. And uh, I said, sure, why not? It was winter. And he said, okay, well, I'll uh, I'll uh, pick you up around four. And I thought, well, maybe we're going for dinner or drinks first. And he said, yeah, I should come and get you four because there's a big snowstorm coming. And I thought, okay, well, whatever. You know, this is back where we didn't ask questions. <laughs> don't ask me questions. No, you still don't long. ask any questions. Yes. <laughs> so, so he picked me up. I remember he was driving a Volvo, so which was a pretty safe car for a young man. But anyway. Get in the car and off we go. And I didn't realize that Bruce Coburn was playing in Guelph. I thought he was playing at Massey Hall or downtown Toronto. And we drove. It was the worst snowstorm. And I think it took us. We were late. It probably took us over four hours to get there. And it was worth it. It was great. Oh, yeah. He was fantastic. I was I was pissed off. But because we still had to drive home. And I wasn't staying in a motel or what have you. But yeah, that was my, uh, my, but it was worth it. It was such a fantastic concert. So yeah, he's a, he's an interesting man. I was really struck by everybody sort of, I think, overuses the word kindness these days. It's very into, you know, talk about how we need more kindness. And yes, we do. Um, but I found it interesting just because he's, he's almost more of a songwriter than he is a singer. And he's a poet. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And, and so he's, it, it still rubs him raw a little bit, I think, not as much as it used to when he was younger, to have other people sing his songs. And I'm, I'm thinking it's sort of like our podcast. It's, uh, yeah, we could, we could let other people 
sort of be in charge, but we like being in charge. We like being in charge. What I find about him is that he's managed to be both a pessimist and an optimist. I mean, very, uh, very aware of what's going on in the world, always has been, feels that he has to speak out, sometimes to his detriment, but at the same time has... I mean, I mean, that lyric of got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight just sums him up. And and those are very inspirational. I I quote that a lot, probably ad nauseum, because it is it's like things may be shitty, but there's light. You just have to find it. And on that note, (laughs) on that note, (laughs) thanks, Mo. I hope uh, everybody feels better because there's been a bit of flu going around, but we're all good. And it was lovely to talk to him. So uh, it was it was. All right. Okay, hope for us. See you later. Bye. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.